Welcome to the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring actor Austin Pendleton, accomplished stage, screen, and television actor. We'll discuss his debut into motion pictures in the late 1960s in such films as Skidoo, working with director Otto Preminger, and Catch-22, which was Mike Nichols' follow-up film to The Graduate, where Austin got a chance to work with famed Orson Welles, who acted in a number of scenes with Austin Pendleton in Catch-22, and we'll later learn how Austin wrote a play called Orson's Shadow, based on Orson's working relationship with Laurence Olivier. We'll also learn what role Austin was almost cast in in the 1970 Robert Altman hit M.A.S.H., We'll learn how important comic timing is from working with director Peter Bogdanovich on the Barbara Streisand-Ryan O'Neill comedy What's Up, Doc, which was inspired by many of the Howard Hawks comedies of the 1930s and 1940s, including Bringing Up Baby and His Girl Friday. Austin's work with director Billy Wilder on the film The Front Page, which was one of the last films that Billy Wilder directed. Also, how Austin directed Elizabeth Taylor, in one of her few Broadway stage appearances in the Lillian Hellman revival of The Little Foxes. Austin also shares with us some great insights on the acting process, collaborating with directors both on stage and in film, and some interesting insights into his class at HB Studio in New York. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at Jog Road, on Instagram at Jog Road Productions, like us on Facebook, Jog Road Productions, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions, and don't forget to write us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast. And now we join actor Austin Pendleton as he shares with us his initial inspiration for pursuing a career as an actor and his first roles in film with directors Otto Preminger and Mike Nichols. Uh, my mom and, and the mom of, of my brother and sister, our, our mom had been a professional actress and director before she married our father. And then she settled down in Warren, Ohio. And then after World War II, they got married before World War II, and all three of us were born either just before or just after or in the middle of World War II. And then after the war, the people in the community came to her because they knew of her professional experience and asked her for some advice from her about um, beginning a community theater. And she not only gave them advice, she became a fundraiser for it, and she, and she participated for years in it as an actress and as a director. And, um, um, <clears throat> and the early productions of maybe the first two or three productions of the play were often rehearsed of, of, of the shows they did were often rehearsed in our living room in the evenings after dinner and um, I was about seven or eight years old by the time that started to happen and I was just blown away I would sneak down and watch the rehearsals after I was supposed to be asleep you know and so would my brother and um, 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 and so um so I, get, I just got hooked on theater then. So I began acting in school, you know, and some friends and, of mine and I began a little uh, little theater group of our own in the basement of, of our house. And, um, <clears throat> and we put on some shows during the high school years and stuff. And uh, then when I got to Yale as an undergraduate, I, I mean, I never went to the drama school at Yale. 
I was either in or connected with every single production that the under the extracurricular undergraduate group, which is called the Dramat. Every production they did the whole four years I was there. And um, um, so I was always just sort of into theater. I, I suppose abstractly I thought if I got in theater in New York and that led to being in some films, that would be nice. But I, I didn't, I wasn't pursuing it, you know what I mean? And then, um, so then I came to New York and I started to get in shows. And um, I, um, then that led to a guy who saw one of them writing a screenplay. Well, he wrote two screenplays. One was Brewster McLeod, which he wanted me to do, but, but I didn't get the part finally when the film was put on. But the other one was Skidoo. And that was picked up by Otto Preminger, and he had he'd seen me in a couple of plays in New York, and he cast me in the part that was written for me. And that began the film career. And then the second film was directed by Mike Nichols. That was Catch-22. And um, But I had worked under Mike's direction in the theater in New York. So the theater kind of led to the film. Uh, I was curious for you, after doing so much uh, stage work, you know, transitioning the Deuce Skidoo with Otto Preminger, um, mm-hmm. You know, technically as an actor, did you feel that there was a big transition in terms of, you know, adjusting to marks and lights and a lot of the there's technical... A, there's, a, there's more of a hassle than a huge transition. You just have to get used to it. It's not... You get used to it pretty quick. I, I, I remember one of the first scenes we shot in Skidoo that in the rehearsal I kept, I kept on missing the mark. And Otto, who had a slightly short fuse, cried out, You're an amateur! And without knowing that I was going to say it, I said, I know I am. What are we going to do about it? And then he immediately melted. And he said, oh, no, no, I didn't mean you an amateur. It's just you must get used to it. So one of the leading roles, uh, so in Skidoo, often while the crew would set up the lights for, for a given scene in Skidoo, and I had some rather long scenes in Skidoo, Otto would just talk to me about film acting. And... Um, not about the technique of it, either in terms of, of marks and stuff like that, or about, um, or even about the difference in how much you should project and how much you should hold back, which is, of course, slightly different than it is in the theater. More just about, I remember one thing he just saying to me, you have to think of every take as opening night. And that was a really profound thing. Because yeah, yeah. you don't ever know which take is going to be the one in the film. Yeah, and especially uh, in film, you don't have as much rehearsal. Oh, I was going to say, especially in film, you don't have that you know big rehearsal time that you would with a play. No, 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 you don't. So you have to maintain that level. Uh, it's easier to see if you're trained properly in the being a theater actor. You think of every performance as opening night, but um, um, I suppose what he wanted me to avoid was thinking of any take as a rehearsal. And um, uh, and that was a very, that was like, whatever little amount of rehearsal you've been able to do, you just have to concentrate it all into a real focus, uh, every single take. Yeah, because you don't know, especially with the coverage and the way it's edited, you always have to be on, you always have to be focused. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and there, and it was, uh, and he would have talks with, talks with me like that. He was very helpful to me. And um, at, at first, you know, when you first would meet him, he was, uh, you know, at, at least at work on the film, he was, uh, he was, he was temperamental and all that. And I thought, oh my God, I'm so scared. I don't know what to do. 
And um, but then I read an interview with Jane Fonda in an LA paper. Skidoo was um, uh, 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 was largely shot in LA, and um, on the Paramount lot. And uh, and Jane Fonda was interviewed. And she had been in his most recent movie called Hurry Sundown, which I I have yet to see. I've never seen it. And she said. She was asked about her and that she said, I think I've done the best work I've done so far in that movie. And I thought, well, that's a reflection on Otto Preminger. If Jane Fonda would say that, that's impressive. So, and then once we got past that moment, that little moment about the marks, he was like heaven and very instructive, very. And then just a few years ago, I went to the film forum in New York and I, they were having a Preminger retrospective and I went to see almost everything I went to see the classic well-known ones that I'd seen seen years before but then I saw a lot of his little movies that he made for the studios in his early years before he began to make the big epics and they're just flawlessly made and people often do do their best work in those movies like um, Joan Crawford did a movie with him and and I mean Joe Crawford's very powerful, but it's such a, a subtle, complicated performance she gives. And, um, you know, I think Jimmy Stewart and Anatomy of a Murder, it doesn't get any better than that. Oh, excellent movie. Yeah, and so the people tended to do a certain kind of work in his films. Yeah, I always knew I, he was, um, he was I, famous for those long takes, very, very long yes. takes. Yeah, and he, yes, he loved those. He had an aversion to the close-up. He, he wanted the audience to see everything that was going on, and I, I love that in his movies. Uh, so I, that that promotes a kind of an ensemble work. Oh, definitely. Uh, you can see that in... Uh, so I remember he was watching Advise and Consent recently. and uh, Oh, God, that's a brilliant movie. Performances in that, Burgess Meredith, Henry Fonda. Um, yeah. I, I was curious for you, um, going into... Catch-22, which was, that was Mike Nichols' follow-up to The Graduate. He had just won the Academy Award, and it was this huge production. And, um, yes. you know, working with Orson Welles and so many people on that film. Was that, you know, a different experience for you, transitioning from Preminger to Nichols in terms of their styles of working well, well, on the film? Well, well I, I, um, I already knew Mike a couple of years, about a year and a half before we shot Catch-22. I'd been in Mike's production at Lincoln Center on stage of the Little Foxes with Anne Bancroft and one of those casts that he put together, you know. Everybody would work for Mike, you know. And um, uh, so I, I, I already had a working relationship with Mike. So it, it, it wasn't, it was a transition from Otto, although what they were after wasn't all that different from each other, but Mike's way of working was, you know, a little different. But I already knew Mike's way of working from the Little Foxes. Uh, well, I remember I was reading um, uh, Orson Welles on the set was sort of trying to direct over Mike, or he was sort of trying to... He, to... he not only was trying, he was over-directing. Uh. <laughs> I mean, and, and he would make it clear that if the cast and crew didn't do what he said, he would blow the takes. He was outrageous. <laughs> and my, Orson Welles' most fanatic admirers, and I'm one of them, uh, n never accused him of having a flawless sense of comedy. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, and so his ideas were not as good as Mike's. But finally, just to get the shots, Mike would say, 
do what he says, you know. And uh, the, the scenes turned out okay. The, the, as, as Mike directed them, they were absolutely brilliant. But but they turned out okay because they're basically very well-written scenes. And the basic fundamental direction Mike had given them had been great. But then we had to sort of apply horses. <laughs> it was really... I, I, I was only on it two weeks because Orson was only on it two weeks and we were all in each other's scenes. So, and he would only be there for two... He would, would, would stay longer than two weeks. So, um, the... Um, and um, when I got back to New York, I remember... I have never been that tired. I, I mean, never, ever, because you never knew every day what was going to... On the other hand, Orson was off the set, like, hanging around, you know, waiting for scenes to be lit and stuff. Enchanting. He was so much fun to listen to. He had opinions on every film director, alive or dead. He was... He would old court. He would tell stories. We would all sit there enraptured. He was fun, and he was sweet. But he was, he was uh, a gentle word would be he was very manipulative on the actually on the set. Yeah, well, I know um, you wrote the play Orson's Shadow, um, you know, which yeah. really delved into you know Orson's life, sort of you know with Laurence Olivier doing that play. And how much of writing that play came from your encounters with him on the set? Well, that's an interesting question. I um, we made Catch-22 in 1969 and came up the following year. And then in 1996, I think it was, I was in L.A., and a friend of mine, Judith Aubergenois, whose husband is Rene Aubergenois, invited me over for breakfast. They lived, and I think still live in L.A. And, and I went over, and I worked with the two of them at the American Conservatory Theater. We were in the acting company in the mid to late 60s. And um, she said, and she said, come over for breakfast. And I got there, and she said, um... I think a play should be written about when Orson Welles directed Laurence Olivier in Rhinoceros in 1960. And she had found a couple of paragraphs in biographies of either person, like either of those men. And it would rate maybe a paragraph in the biographies of either. It didn't work out that well. So um, apparently I didn't see it. Uh, so she said, I, I later learned I was the fourth playwright that she went to. But the... Um, but so I said, okay, let me think about it. And somebody, a good friend of mine, two nights before, just by karmic coincidence, had given me the first volume of the Simon Callow biography of Orson. And then I was on a film set at the same time. That was why I was in L.A. And there in the, in, in, in the dust beside my chair on the set was a paperback of Olivier's autobiography. <laughs> I said, whose is this? And a crew member, an assistant director said, oh, I found that, we were in some small town. I found that at a library across the street, you know, in a yard sale. I bought it for a dime last weekend. Take it. So I, all this, these books about either person began to fall into my hand. At first, I didn't know whether I wanted to pursue Judith's idea or not. I didn't feel, well, I guess, up to it. But these books kept coming. And then I thought, when Catch-22 came out, and before it came out, of course, there was a lot of press about it. And everyone swarmed on the set when Orson was there, all these interviewers and, and, and writers. And uh, they all interviewed everybody. And so when the film opened, I was quoted saying certain smart-ass remarks about Orson. At that time, all I knew about Orson was... Uh, Citizen Kane, and I and um, um, I'd seen him act in some movies, in some of which he was good. But 
But but the but but the only one he he directed that I'd ever seen was Citizen Kane. And that was it's a wonderful movie, but Jesus Christ, this guy, you know. And so I made smart-ass young actor remarks about him. And then I got back from Catch Twenty Two, and that was those were the days of the revival houses, you know. And I saw, I saw the Magnificent Ambersons. I saw Chimes at Midnight. I saw A Touch of Evil. I saw. And I thought, oh my God, I wish I'd seen these before I worked with him. I would have put up, I would have, anything he wanted to do, I would have, you know, I would have had a whole different feeling about him. I think those movies are even more interesting movies than Citizen Kane, as a matter of fact. So that was sort of in my head for a long time, and I, and I never saw him again. And of course, by the time Judith O'Bergenau came to me with this idea, um, she, um, this was about, 11 years after Orson had died. And first, as I say, I didn't know whether I was up to writing a play like that. I mean, how do you write a play about those people, you know? And, um, but then as I say, the books began to like arrive at my door just by total coincidence, which was weird. But also I thought, I want to put on public record somehow uh, attempted a compassionate look at Orson. I mean, I don't know if I'm up to it, but I think I, so that became the reason I wrote the play to make up for all the, for how short-sighted I was about him when I worked with him. I thought if, if I had made films like that and then I couldn't get the, I couldn't get the backing for films after that, um, I, I would be difficult on a set. He probably, well, no, I know he thought. He, he for years, had wanted to make Catch-22, and now Mike Nichols was making it, and um, uh, who was, you know, the hot shot in those days. Well, he was a brilliant director, Mike, but he was in that first flush of great success. And um, so I, I think that's the reason I finally wrote the play, was to make it up to Orson. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I mean... <laughs> Too little, too late, but still. Yeah, well, I think that definitely, you know, it explains a lot of, you know, his frustration, you know, being on that set, you know, a film that he had wanted to make all of those years. Yeah, and... yeah. And I, yeah. And, and he, you know what he was on that set? He was no worse than a very bad boy. But he was a bad boy. I mean, you don't take over scenes in somebody else's film. Oh, and he would boast on the set of Cutsley, too. How he had that one big scene in A Man for All Seasons, you know. Uh, directed by Fred Zinnemann, no less. And, <laughs> and he would say, I threw Fred Zinnemann off the set. I, I lit it, I arranged the shots, I directed the scene. <laughs> and he was proud of stuff like that. Uh, well, speaking and, of, um, of Orson Welles, because I know you had worked with Peter Bogdanovich, who you know wrote that great book about Orson. I met Peter was on the set for Catch-22 when he was interviewing Orson. They would sit in the, we, we shot it in the desert in Mexico, uh, uh, Catch-22. And Peter, in a black suit, would sit in the desert with Orson, with, with a microphone up to Orson, with a tape recorder going. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, that's how I met Peter. And then Peter, two years later, whatever, called me in to read for What's Up, Doc. I was actually reading somewhere that uh, originally Peter thought you were you were wrong for the role, and you sort of had to convince him uh, to cast you at some yes, point. Yes, yeah, he did. In fact, 
I think my agent at the time, Deborah Coleman was her name. She was my agent for many, many years before she retired. She called in to propose me for to audition for What's Up Doc. And word come back. This is how I remember it. This may be slightly wrong. Peter said, well, okay. You know, and I came in and Peter said, and I had the only other time I'd ever seen him was on the set of Catch-22. Peter said, um, I don't think you're right for this. I said, okay. Okay. Um, why don't you take the script and read it and you tell me what you think? It was something like this. I think I probably have this a little bit wrong. So I, I said, well, can I come in and read? I, I, I'd love to have a shot at this, you know. So I go in and read. He said, oh, wait a minute. Maybe this would work. He's, he's very honest, Peter. You know, he, he doesn't play games with you. And all, all of this, when he said, I don't think you're right for it, whatever, was perfectly friendly. It was sort of colleague to colleague, you know. And I got the part. <laughs> what was... Uh, it doesn't always work that way, but I, on this occasion, I got the part. What was incredible about that film is that there's such a, a speed and precision, um, you know, almost like oh, the old that, Howard Hawks type movies, like His Girl Friday, yeah, which I know is isn't that hard to do, because it particularly says Peter, and and with with speed that fast in the dialogue, you sort of have to do this, but Peter likes to do it anyway. He would do a whole scene in in the master. He wouldn't do he wouldn't do coverage. There wouldn't be close up. So he would have these long scenes of this high speed kind of dialogue, and. If anybody made a mistake, even right toward the end of the scene, you had to go back and do it all over again. And we would do it at breakneck speed, like scenes of six or seven of us together. And um, Peter would go, now, come on, guys, it's got to be faster than that. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the dialogue itself is very intricate. It's very, a whole lot of words in it, you know. And, and it was like, but what that did, apart from the aesthetic reasons for doing it, which were... Excellent. Uh, what what um, what that did was 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 that um, um, that created an ensemble feeling among all of us. We were all in the same boat. There was no hierarchy on that set among the actors. Everybody had to get it exactly right, or yeah, you know, you're and depending on everybody. The, that set was it. That was extraordinarily, we all bonded on that, so to an extraordinary degree. That's that's a, a very fond recollection I have of What's Up, Doc. Uh, everybody was very open to everybody else. Nobody was the more important one, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, it was a brilliant cast. You had, uh, you know, of course, Madeline Kahn, Barbara Streisand, Ryan O'Neill, Kenneth Mars. Yeah. Yeah, and everybody was very supportive of everyone else. I, m I remember there was a beautiful moment once when there was a take Madeline did and some scene where she's alone in the scene, I forget, maybe a phone call, I forget, I haven't seen the movie in years. Um, and she did it, and then she did the next take, and the next take was brilliant and much more contained, you know. And I said, God, that was incredible. And she said, that's a note between takes I got from Barbara. Because, because it was Madeline's first film, but it was Barbara's third or fourth film. And Barbara, by that point, she kicked off working with William Wyler, who was a great director of actors. And she just learned, she just gave, I, I, I never asked Madeline exactly what Barbara had said, but it felt from the change between the first and second take that, that, um, it just got much simpler. 
Well, I know uh, Barbara I, went on to become I a director what, herself. I think, what, I think that's what Barbara must have suggested. I, I didn't ever ask. But it was that kind of that kind of bonding on the set. And Kenneth Mars was really helpful to me. And, and, and like that all the way along, you know. I was curious um, for you, you know, you were working on, I think it was one of the last films that Billy Wilder did, which was The Front Page. Um, yes. You know, someone that was, you know, legendary filmmaker. Uh, what was your first encounter with Billy Wilder and, you know, sort of what was that experience? I met him the first day on the set. I, I oh. was in a play that I, in New York, that I had to leave early in order to do the film. And um, I had no audition for him or anything. So I flew out on a crack of dawn flight from New York to LA, and of course you gain hours. And and uh, so I, 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 I and I was I, I was driven right to the set. And um, so the plane had landed as early as like nine a.m. in LA or something. I turned right to the set, and I was, and and I, I had to do the first scene right away, which was among the more among the more challenging scenes in the role. And um, I, uh, he said, Billy Wilder comes up. <laughs> and I was a little intimidated. Billy Wilder comes up and says, I had promised myself that before I died, I would work with you. I, I, I mean, I was, to put it mildly, unprepared for a statement like that. And I thought, this is Phoenix charm at its most, uh, or wherever he came from. Uh, <laughs> and then he was, he was like that all the way through the shoot. He was just, uh, you know, and it, that's very, because, um, you know, it took me a number of films not to feel really insecure on a film set, just because, you know, there's cameras photographing you and all that shit, you know, but, um, but you know, <laughs> that was wonderful. He was like that to me. Couldn't get certain details of the scene, right, just, just in the behavior. He says, you've just been shot, you are, you, the way you're, touching the wound you're not he said I'm such an admirer of yours I could not bear to release to the public any take of yours that is less than your best (laughs) that's a very uh, gentle kind way of saying will you fucking pull your act together you know what I mean that's such a classy way of saying that (laughs) you can't resist a person like that I was curious, I, I read something um, that you were offered one of the lead roles in M.A.S.H., is that accurate? Mm-hmm. Was that uh, Trapper oh, the John? The role or? of Radar. Oh, the role of Radar, wow. Mm-hmm. And while I, we were making Catch-22, in the scenes with Orson and me was the actress uh, Suzanne Benton. Is that her name? Yeah. And uh, she said, uh, oh, what are you doing next? I said, well, I've been asked of an offer this part in this movie called MASH. And, uh, but I don't know. I mean, it does, it, I mean, they're both anti-war black comedies, this and Catch-22, and I, Catch-22 is such a great, going to be such a great film. And um, she said, do it. I said, well, she, she had just made a movie with Altman called That Cold Day in the Park. She said, do it. He's brilliant. He's innovative. He's he's got a whole way of working that's all his own. Do that movie. I said, well, I don't like the part. I, I this is radar we're talking about. <laughs> I was, you know, I I was complaining and whining and saying I don't like the part. And she said, do it. Well, to my everlasting regret, I did not do it. 
to, and Altman tended to use the same actors over and over again. And he made 12 or so of my favorite movies ever. And uh, <laughs> that was a horrible mistake. I met him once at a party. We were both stoned or something. And I said, if this means anything at all to you, I, there's no professional decision I've ever made I regret more. He chuckled, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a big mistake. I, I think I was feeling a little full of myself. I thought, oh, I'm going to be catch-22. I don't need to do this shit. And I didn't, I'd never heard of Altman. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I went and read for him and that was perfectly pleasant. But actually, paradoxically, I, I, I mean, there was a perfectly good script for MASH, but the thing that really transformed it was, what he did with it and um so um um and then when i finally was able to bring myself to see the movie i thought oh my god and then i just started to see everything he ever made what's really interesting is that the the script for mash i think was uh barely used in the actual finished product there was so much improvisation yeah yeah and i i didn't i see i didn't grasp any that any of that was going to happen but but suzanne said just show up. He, it's, it's, he's amazing. Uh, well, a film that I wanted to bring up, which I'm a, I'm a big fan of, I think is sort of underrated, is Starting Over, which I believe that was Alan J. Pakula's follow-up right. to All the President's that's, Men. So he, it, he went yeah, from this big drama to this uh, romantic comedy, which I think was really well executed. Jim Brooks, I think, uh, wrote the screenplay. Yes, right. That, that's a beautiful movie. And, and he's, he was quite a director to work with, Alan. Again, he had a way of working that was unlike anybody I've ever worked with, where every take he would give you something else to play, and he would be, and so, and and he would do like 21 takes of like a close-up of a speech or something like that. And every take, he would go, okay, we have it that way, now we try it this way. And two things would start to happen. First of all, you got a sort of feeling of insecurity. I guess he's just not happy. He was very pleasant. I mean, he was very... And then the other aspect of it was, after a while, you couldn't sort anything out, all the different choices you'd been giving. And finally, you you just... Uh, you didn't know what you were doing anymore. And then he had you where he wanted you, where there was no acting that, that, that the audience could watch, just watching somebody trying to get through the scene. And... and uh, um, and it, and that's how he got, he asked me at one point, I, I had, I auditioned for that three times. And the second time he said, I don't know why, why do you want to do this? And I said, well, <laughs> I tried to, well, it's a job. And a good movie. I mean, I, 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 but I, I didn't know what to say. I said, well, why do you ask that? He said, well, this isn't the kind of character you usually play. You usually play these really eccentric characters, and this is a more straightforward part. I said, well, I guess that's maybe one of the reasons I want to do it. He said, what else? I said, okay, can I just say? And he said, what? I said, I think All the President's Man has more really brilliant performances in it than any single movie I've ever seen. And I want to know what it is you do. That kind of stopped the conversation. And then um, I was called in a third time, and I, I, I read with Burt Reynolds. And um, 
that went well. So then I got the part. And but there was one 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 moment in particular in the audition I did with Bert, which was the last audition I did. And and they loved that moment. And then when we shot the film, I couldn't get that moment back. And finally, Alan let it go. He said, no, "Wait, there was this thing you did. I'm not sure. I can't find it." And and um, uh, but that's what filmmaking is like. Uh, you, you do something on the wing, as it were, and either an audition or an early take, and you don't know where it came from. And uh, so. Take after take is like an onrushing river, you know, things get swept away. And, um, but it was a terrific, I mean, I learned a lot about the process of acting and of directing, actually, by watching the way Alan would would move you through take after take after take. You were not allowed to fall in love with anything you did. And yet he was very gentle, his personality. And I, I you know, I... I would run into him over the years after that. He was always lovely. And as it happened, I, I was at a birthday party for a mutual friend of ours at a restaurant and we sat across the table from each other three weeks before he died. And he was very excited about the screenplay. He was adapting from the Doris Kearns Goodwin book about FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt during World War II called No Ordinary Time. If you've never read that book, you should read it. And um, I said... I said, is Meryl Streep going to it? He said, yes, I've offered her both roles, both Franklin and Eleanor. <laughs> <laughs> and because uh, uh, he, uh, I thought, when I saw it, two, two movies after, after starting over, for him was uh, Sophie's Choice. And in the first, her first scene in that movie, which is, of course, right at the beginning of the movie, um, I thought, oh, God. The way he works with us, she she's always been incredible, you know, incredibly fine. But there was a whole new dimension, and who who knows what, whether that directly had to do with Alan or whether that was just where she was moving as an actress or her particular identification with that role. But there was a whole new thing that made it even more exciting than other things she'd done to me, and that has stayed in the work her work ever since. And um, it was, um, um, so, but I've seen that he's kind of, in a whole different way, he's kind of like uh, Kazan was. People do a whole new kind of work when they work for him. Yeah, I thought that the same way with uh, Burt Reynolds, because, you know, up to that point, there had really been no other role that he had done that was in that range. I mean, he was always known as the action star, sort of like the tough guy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He was so vulnerable in that part. I thought it was, you know, it's one of his, uh, you know, best performances. I, I think so too. I think so too. Yes, absolutely. Um, I wanted to talk with you about the uh, Broadway production you directed of the Little Foxes, which was a revival of the Lillian Hellman play, and you had the opportunity to direct Elizabeth Taylor, and I believe her only uh, Broadway appearance. Is that correct? No, she did two. After that, she ah. did a production of Private Lives with Richard Burton. Uh, what was, um, you know, was it always sort of in the mix to have Elizabeth Taylor play that part, or was there any convincing? Oh, no, she, the, she, she, she was in it before I was involved, and she was in the, she, um, she was married at that time to Senator Warner from Virginia, and um, um, 
she and her husband went to an opening night in the Washington area of a Broadway-bound show produced by Sev uh, Buffman. And at the opening night party, um, uh, Elizabeth was talking to Sev and said, God, I'd like to do, I'd like to be in a play. And he said, as any producer would have said, really? And uh, she said, yeah, I would like that. And so they talked about plays and they picked the Little Foxes. And then out of the blue, I got a call would I come and be interviewed by Lillian Hellman, whom I already knew because, as I say, I'd been in, in Mike Nichols' production of the same play about, about 14 years before. Would I come and be interviewed by her? And then I could, what if, if she approved, would I be interviewed by Elizabeth Taylor, whom I'd never met? So those two interviews I had. And they offered me the part. I mean, the, the job. So when we went, and then about a week or two, then, about, then we had auditions forever, you know, for the other parts. Then um, I went down, to, and she was down in Florida, Elizabeth. And I went down there and spent a weekend with her reading through the script and everything. And then about two weeks after that, we went into rehearsal. And she just, she, she would and could talk to anybody. She just would. Here's this person who had lived this utterly sheltered life, you know, because she became a major star at the age of 12 or something. And she could talk to anybody. She was just right there with whoever she was talking to. And there was, no, and, and again, there was no hierarchy in the rehearsals. There was no, um, um, she was lovely. Uh, and for... she was a good actress. Her, her, her best film work is like really good, you know. And there was a certain, there was a lot of that in Little Foxes. Yeah, if you look at uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which I think she won the Academy Award for. I mean, it's yeah, just she's wonderful. powerful. Um, I, I was there's several other movies. They're all through a career, like A Place in the Sun and the Tennessee Williams, you know, and then um, the um, just all kinds of performances turn up in that career. And you go, whoa, where did this, this is? you know, and um, she was like that. For uh, for someone like Elizabeth Taylor, who learned so much about acting from uh, acting in front of a camera, being on film sets, was there ever a, a big transition for her to act on no, stage? No, and, and the reason I wasn't worried about that is, is that so many, much of her best film work was in roles written for the theater. Virginia Woolf and Suddenly Last Summer and Cat on a Hudson Roof and so on with long scenes written in the elevated language of the stage by great writers for the stage and that requires a way of thinking and in fact a way of breathing and a way of developing a whole arc in the scene and all that that I thought well she has a sense of theatrical writing and in fact the plays in which she uh, the um, the the plays that she was in the movies of are, are, are even more demanding plays than The Little Foxes. And and there's a, I mean, she plays for the camera. I mean, she plays with the intimacy of the camera, but but she plays with the fire of that writing in Albie or Tennessee Williams. And she plays um, with a sense of the art, which is a huge 
that's the most important thing about theater acting. You have to have the whole arc in mind at every moment when you're on stage. And um, and she had that. She already knew how to do that. So I thought that that that, that she, in a way she's been preparing herself for a stage appearance all her life. Yeah, no, I especially like Suddenly Last Summer. I think that's a Oh, really she's wonderful film. in that. See, anybody who could do that speech at the end of that play on film in one, in one, in, w- w- without any, without any intercutting, um, that person knows how to be on the stage. No, it's, uh, yeah, no, I wish there was a uh, film record of uh, The Little Foxes. <laughs> I wish there was, there see. was going to be one. It got all, all, it got all tied up in issues having to do with the rights and everything. And even uh, Lillian Hellman tried to intercede. And, but there were the TV rights were owned by, there's been a TV thing, production of the play in the 50s or something. And it, it just got too complicated and finally they dropped it. Um, I wanted to talk with you about, you know, a lot of filmmakers are always, um, you know, they get sometimes wrapped up in the technical aspects of the process. And for you, when you arrive onto a film set, what do you look for from your director that can help you? And also adversely, um, what can also hurt you from a director as well on a film set? Well, long ago, I figured out you go in and you take whatever you get. Because everybody's different, and and you don't you don't look for a particular kind of help. Because what happens when you do that is that you start to think, well, if I'm not getting the kind of help I think I need, I'm not getting any help at all. But actually, you are getting some kind of help. You just have to figure out what kind of help it is. Um, very, um, even well, and I've hardly had any of these. But even directors who are kind of abusive. You can, if you just hang on, there is a point they're trying to make to you. And uh, if they're getting impatient with you and cross with you and everything, but there's a thing they're not seeing. And so you, you, you try not to go to the place of, oh, you're just being mean to me, you know. Say, okay, what are you... And I'll certainly have to say, I've hardly ever had that experience, but in fact, I can't remember the last time. But, but you say something like, look, uh, what is it? Tell me exactly what you're not seeing. Because I'm confused. And then they'll say. And they'll either be relieved that you asked, so they'll say it kind of very reasonably, or they'll say it unre- uh, with anger, but they'll say it. And then it's usually very clear. You say, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Okay, great, let's go. Um, I can't remember the last time, I mean, I'll say this, and now it'll happen next week, you know, but... I can't remember the last time I had a fight with a director on a film, except the main reason actors get in fights with directors is, is if the actor gets really panicked. And, of course, that happens once in a while. You think, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to do this. Oh, I'm so scared. Oh, they're going to say action in a minute. And I have no idea what to do. Or it's the first, if it's a play, it's the first preview in an hour, and I have no idea what I'm doing. And then you get, and that's when you start to fight with the director. And, um, um, but that, that's fairly infrequent. You know, what's interesting is in the, in the theater world and the, you know, rehearsing for a play, you could do that for, you know, weeks, months. 
but you know for you know many actors who arrive on film sets um you know there's usually no rehearsal and you're just arriving that day and you're just immersed in the process Um, yeah for you is there is that sort of like a big contrast in terms of your process as an actor or no well i mean yeah it, it is of course completely different process but I don't know. Acting is acting. <laughs> scripts are scripts, you know. It's just, despite what I said about what Otto taught me, which is important, uh, <clears throat> there's an approach to acting, and I subscribe to it, that says every rehearsal is a rehearsal, every performance is a rehearsal, every take in any film is a rehearsal. Everything is an ongoing process. It's just that the performance aspect of it starts earlier on film. But it's like an escalator. You get on the escalator and uh, you keep at it. Uh, and, I mean, some, sometimes it's refreshing that you hardly know what you're going to do and they do the first take. Sometimes there's a kind of freshly minted thing happens. And then sometimes it's a total disaster, but there are other takes to come. Yeah. I was curious, um, I know you've been you know, teaching quite a bit over the years. Uh, yeah. Has there been anything that you, you know, impart to your students that you feel is uh, very vital for you know, whether well, working? There are, there are a whole, whole lot of things, but one of them is don't fight with your director. <laughs> I remember my, the one who taught me acting at the school where I now teach was Uta Hagen, you know. Oh yeah, I read her book in college. Uh, really, yeah, uh, yeah. And she was a, uh, among other she was a great teacher. She's also a great actress. She originated Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. She um, was the person who played it on Broadway. But um, and and one of the things that's that's anathema to the kind of teaching she she did, and that a lot of the major acting teachers did, is. Don't work for results. Just keep trying to understand the role, and the results will come. But if you try to jump to the results immediately, you will. There's no way you will have found the origin of them, and you will give a phony uh, mechanical performance. Okay. One day, there was an actress in the class, and they came in, and she was. This actress was working in a supporting role in a play directed by a director from Greece named Michael Kakoyanis. Uh, uh, who was totally about results. He was a brilliant director, oh my God. He directed a production of the Trojan Women off-Broadway, that the, the Euripides play that literally, I, wanted, I haven't forgotten it since many years ago. Um, but he was directing Broadway show. And um, this actress came in and she said, Uda, Uda, what, what shall I do? And I said, what's the problem? She said, Kakoyanos every day asks for results immediately. What shall I do? To say, give them to him. Which was directly contradictory to everything Uta taught. And the actress looked blank. And she said, what else are you going to do? Give them to him. And, and so she was very practical about what you do in a rehearsal situation. You, you get a certain technique, but if the director is demanding certain things, don't fight with him about it. It's totally unproductive to fight with a director because it just gets into hardened positions and then, and then no work gets done. But the, the, um, 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 but then three years after that, or 
two year old, whatever, um, was when I acted with Anne, with with Anne Bancroft in The Little Foxes, the Mike Nichols show, and and I asked she was in that same play where Tuck Oriandis was giving herself up the actress, and Anne Bancroft was wonderful in that play, and I and I said, how did you do that? Because he 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 would ask for results all the time, right? And Anne said, well, I'd give them to him, and then I'd go home at night and figure out how to justify it. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how to justify the thing in the character that would produce that result that he wants. She says it's working backwards, but he was the director. And I just, I tell my class that all the time. This, this is Anne Bancroft we're talking about. I mean, be adaptable. And um, the um, um, be, uh, I mean, go with the flow, even if the flow is turbulent. So I'm, I harp on that with the actors. Other than that, I teach, I had three great acting teachers. One was Uta Hagen, one was her husband, Herbert Berghoff, who founded the studio. And one was Robert Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. Um, and they all, I, but basically, I teach everything they taught with little things of my own thrown in. But most of the things of mine that I throw in are purely anecdotal. I tell them things that happen and situations that came up and how everybody navigated them or something like that. But the but the um, but I just simply teach Uta Hagen, and Herbert Berghoff and Robert Lewis um, in terms of technique and craft and how to work and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, I think that's important. What you brought up before is, you know, sort of going with the flow and, you know, it's one yeah. big collaboration. So, you know, the rest of the crew can sort of, you know, feel the energy of what's going on if yeah. uh, there is conflict. You cannot swim upstream against what's happening in any film or any stage production. You just can't. You will always go under. It's, it's just a fact. Um, and... Um, you will corrupt yourself. You'll corrupt the rest of the show. You won't win. Or if you win, it'll be a pyrrhic victory. Yeah, that's very true. It can be toxic to the rest of the production going yeah. forward. Yeah, it just throws everything off. And the director, and as Zuda puts it in her book, in either her first or second book, the the um, director is it's a fairly enact, exact analogy to the conductor of an orchestra. If the oboe decides the oboe doesn't agree with the orchestra, you know, I mean, the oboe's going to look horrible and so is the rest of the orchestra. That's all that will happen from that. 